Hi, I'm Adrian Maiman. Welcome to I'm Also. This episode of I'm Also is taken from the recent storytelling event in Tauranga, organised by Dawn Pickin. It features local people telling their incredible life stories. Storytellers had just seven minutes each to engage the audience and share a time when their perspective or their life changed. This is part two of two. First up, we have Reese Johnston. He is a builder who owns Upfront Building. He's also an ultra marathon runner. And for those of you who don't know what an ultra marathon is, anything over a marathon, anything over 42.2, that's an ultra. Reese runs much, much further. I'll let him tell you about that. He's married with three children and enjoys getting outside. He lives in Rotorua. Naturally, the story involves a new beginning on the running trail. Welcome, Reese. Thank you. Uh, despair is described as the complete loss or absence of hope. Tonight, I wanted to tell you uh, a story, story about despair. February this year, I was, um, uh, sorry. February this year, I was 75k um, into an event on the outskirts of Rotorua. I've been running through through valleys, over tops, past many lakes. Um, my wet, uh, my top was wet with sweat from the day. My, my legs were uh, burning with pain. There was a stiffness that was stopping me from flowing, being able to push further forward. Every, every stride I was trying to take felt like it would be my last. My vision was going blurry. My energy level was sucked so dry, I felt like literally a vacuum cleaner had been sucking on my soul. I was, um, yeah, in, the, in, this, in this moment. And um, I, you know, in this moment, still had 25 kilometers left to the finish line, so that's over half marathon. I'm in this state. The thought to carry on, it was, felt impossible, overwhelming. Uh, felt there was no way it could be done. I um, had to uh, accept this moment, you know, where I was in this moment, and uh, the only way I could get through was to just to just to accept how I got there, uh, let go of that, and become at peace with the moment. Which sounds like kind of a crazy thing to do, and you'd think, "Why the hell uh, would you put yourself in this situation?" But this is actually part of what attracts me back to doing these events: is being in this place. It's a place that will change you as a person. Um, been so present at the moment and trying to find a way out. I was, um, had, it wasn't the first time I'd been there before, so this was an, uh, an event in, in February. Um, I happened to be in the, in the lead as well on this race in this moment with 25 kilos to go. So I'd had some experience before in this moment um, to share with you in um, my first time I ever run a 100 kilometer race. And uh, I'd come to that with a lot of determination some good fitness, um, but a lack of knowledge. And uh, when I was in this place, I just kept pushing, um, pushing as hard as I could and, and didn't know the things to do to, to, to correct myself. I got to the finish line of that event and uh, didn't feel too good sitting on the chair. And the medic said, hey mate, you wanna come and um, we'll just check you out, come into the medic tent at the, at the back here. And uh, got the medic to lay down, started with pins and needles in my lip. Um, that then started to, to head up through my face, pins and needles through my face, my vision 
went from blurring, started blacking out. I was just freezing cold. I just started shivering uncontrollably. And um, they got me to lay down. They uh, went and got some blankets, laid them over me to warm me up. My friend had come into the mini tent with them and uh, they pulled my shoes off to unveil golf ball sized blisters on my feet. Then the medic started to take my vitals and um, they're like, hey, sorry, buddy, but you're actually uh, overheating. So, um, blanket's gone, goes and gets a bucket of ice. I'm still lying there, absolutely freezing to shivering. So, pouring ice over me, wet towels. You know, eventually, okay, right, it wasn't a pleasant experience. Um, I've learned from that first experience that you you have to listen to your body, you know, in these moments, and it's not just about pushing hard. You can definitely take your, yourself to a, you know, a, a very uh, vulnerable place, but it's, yeah, don't keep pushing down here. There's only your demons if you keep going that way. So, so I've learned that. One of the other things uh, I needed was some mental fuel uh, during this race uh, earlier this year. So. There's always a reason when you get to that place to, um, you know, I was in the lead and winning, that was a pretty good reason to keep pushing hard, but um, it's not, that's not enough, you know, you, you just, it, it, second place came up and that's the state, you'd just be like, good on you mate, see and carry on, you, you need something a bit more powerful. My coaches had helped me hugely through the year building into this event, I, to be honest, I shouldn't have actually made it to the start, like I've been through, um, through depression, I've been through uh, a lot of injury, um, work stress, life stress. They've been, you know, it's been a rocky year put into it, and I've been there uh, every moment for me to help pull me out of that. And so that was the thought that came into my mind. That was my power, my strength. Was uh, they were actually on the finish line, emceeing it, part of the event, and uh, I knew they'd be tracking me through the day. So every time I just wanted to, to quit, to give up, I'd, um, I'd think of them, you know, and it was actually became about doing it for someone else. Um, and, and that gave me massive strength just to keep pushing through and every time just think of them. With about 17k to go, I pop out of the bush at an aid station and then one of those coaches is actually there. That was uh, it was an unexpected, um, unexpected thing to do. They come out to meet me, help me out a bit. Got to this aid station, I'm, I'm scoffing down some uh, some oranges, I think, and uh, they've got buckets of water and sponges. And so I had a mate just sponging water over the top of me and it was the only relief I had. In, in hours, um, I've probably been running seven, seven and a half on hours at this point. So this is my only relief from the day, from that heat. Um, as I'm standing there with the sponge getting squeezed on me, my, my legs started spasming the cramp. I literally was like fireworks going off my quads, calves, hemi, just just locking up. And uh, so I knew, I knew I couldn't stay there any longer. So I was in and out pretty quick, straight back into the bush uh, on my own. Getting to the last 5k and uh, it was out of the shade. The heat was at the peak of its um, peak of its day with the heat. No more shade anymore. It was running into Rotorua City where the finish was. Uh, my my effort was going up. My speed was coming down. Um, I, I was running at a completely unsustainable rate. Uh, finish line, you always hear it before you can see it, and I'll tell you what's the the best sound in the world. I made it. Uh, to the finish line, um, received, a, a, as I was coming up the finish line, shoot a personal haka for the winner of Tarawera uh, 100k. The most amazing experience receiving that. Um, it was an honour um, and a privilege to take out the win and um, you know share that with my coaches there at the finish line. Um, so I made it through that moment of despair and uh, come out the other side 
that would be the person for him. Thank you. Next up, we have Ange Wallace. Ange spent a lot of time chasing sunrises and jumping in the ocean to swim and spearfish so she can share fresh kaimawana with family and friends. She owns a consultancy business called What Lies Beneath, specializing in client feedback. Angie's story is how a cabbage patch kid ruined my relationship. Welcome, Angie. some notes, but I've never done a straight run through and I don't think I'm going to do it now. So, earlier this year, I was sitting on a romantic, deserted beach on a beautiful island, watching as the sun rose on my 44th birthday. I'm with a really great guy. He's my boyfriend. Shall we call him, let's call him Jeff, because his name is Jeff. <laughs> so, I'm opening cards and presents from friends and family, and Jeff explains that the present that he'd ordered for me online hadn't arrived in time for our trip. And I tell him, that's fine, it doesn't matter. But it kind of did matter. And so then I turn to him and say, <laughs> his friend's here. Um, <laughs> I look at him quizzically and ask, well, did you at least get me a card? And that's when I find out that it hadn't even crossed his mind to do anything particularly special for me that day. He felt that being there was enough. Now, it might sound silly, but tears started welling up in my eyes and trickling down my face. And in that moment, despite Jeff being an awesome boyfriend and not having set a foot wrong the whole time, um, I felt completely unloved and uncared for in that moment. And I lashed out of him and said a couple of hurtful things. Now, we didn't break up right then and there on the beach. But things kind of changed between us, and it wasn't long before we pulled the pin on the relationship. And the abruptness of the breakup got me thinking, like, what the hell just happened? Do I really care that much about presents and cards? Am I that spoiled? Am I that materialistic? And I know that the answer to that question is no. So um, what the hell was going on? But I also realized I've had these feelings before. There was something really familiar about the situation. So I decided to figure out what it was. Now, the answer lies in a mini motorbike and a cabbage patch kit. Stay with me. <laughs> so, flashback to Ha A Beach Camping Ground in 1983 when I was six. My brother and I were opening our big present. And I opened mine to reveal a doll. Her name was Ruby Red Shoes, and she did nothing special except you could take her shoes off. What the hell is the point of that? <laughs> and then, with much more fanfare, we walked outside where my brother's present was unveiled. He got a mini motorbike. <laughs> I remember sitting in the caravan, being six, looking at my doll, looking outside as my brother and his motorbike were circled by all the campground kids, and thinking, how the hell can this be fair? Because I've never even liked dolls. <laughs> but I never said a word to my parents about it. <laughs> then, a few years later, the cab... Until now. Until now. Then, a few years later, the Cabbage Patch Kid craze hit New Zealand. And it was the first doll, pretty much the first thing I ever really, really wanted. 
because they weren't like other dolls. You didn't buy a Cabbage Patch Kid, you adopted one. And um, I just didn't want any Cabbage Patch Kid, I wanted the brown-skinned one. So, it turns out you couldn't even get these in New Zealand, but I was in luck, because Dad travelled overseas to the UK often for work. So there was a chance that I could sign his adoption papers. So as he got ready to leave, I cut out a picture from a magazine of the exact doll that I wanted, and I put it in his luggage, and he promised me that he'd bring back the doll. <laughs> it was finally time for Dad to come home. I felt like he was away for so long, and he was exhausted and jet-lagged, as always. And we gathered around as he opened his suitcase like a treasure chest. I was so excited, I couldn't wait to meet my kid. But then he handed me a box. A tiny box, not even big enough for a Cabbage Patch Kid's leg, and which I opened to reveal a watch. Now I know this is bizarre, but Dad went to the UK two more times that year, and both times I begged for the Cabbage Patch Kid, even yelling, a Cabbage Patch Kid, not a doll, as he passed through the passenger only. <laughs> Yet both times he brought me back another bloody watch. <laughs> I got three watches that I didn't want, and I never complained, but the watches turned out to be a bit of a family joke. So you might be listening to this thinking, this sounds like first world problems, right? I didn't get the present that I wanted. And I totally agree. But when you're a kid, you don't understand your privilege. And the hurt wasn't just about the doll, it was about feeling forgotten. And it was about my dad being away and me missing him so much and then feeling like he hadn't even thought about me while he was And for the 10-year-old me, it was a little bit traumatic. But it's not the kind of trauma that you hear about in movies or on the news. It's the traumas that happen to all of us. I've had big traumas in my life, but I knew to deal with them. And they aren't the things tripping me up these days. It's these little bastards that are so small you overlook them and they've got their hooks into secret corners of my mind but especially my heart. And 35 years later, they're the things that make you say nasty things on the perfect beach to your very nice boyfriend. <laughs> so I decided to heal these small hurts, however privileged or inconsequential they might seem to myself or to others. Um, now, it sounds a bit woo-woo, but there's a thing called reparenting, I don't know if anyone's heard of it, where you trace those hurts back. So I went back and gave my little six-year-old and ten-year-old self a big hug and let her know that she was absolutely perfect, exactly how she is, and that she was very, very loved. And much to my surprise, it worked. I felt a sense of relief and released by this. And it's actually really easy to identify your own traumas. Quite simply, when you feel upset, you're being set up to learn something. And until you scratch beneath the surface and learn what's causing the upset, you'll continue to overreact, or the opposite is to shut down. Or as my friend put it recently, you ignore it or you go to war with it. And if you don't explore what's really going on, you'll be stuck in that loop like I was. So anyway, one night, Mum and Dad came over for dinner and I shared these new revelations that I had. And when I told Dad about the watches and how hurt and unseen I'd felt, he was really sorry that I felt so forgotten in those moments. But the lovely thing was, he acknowledged my hurt. He didn't try to rationalise it away with totally legitimate excuses. And it was really meaningful. Thanks, Dad. 
Um, and from all this, I have changed the way I approach things. I'm so much more conscious of my strong feelings now, making me much less likely to react, but way more likely to respond. And I know to ask for what I need, not have these expectations that I all think we all have, which just set us up to be let down. Now, anyway, it was Dad's birthday in August, and my family met at the Mount on a beautiful sunny day for lunch. And Dad stood up and made what was a really confusing speech. And um, then he handed my little nieces a present each, which they unwrapped to reveal two cabbage patches. <laughs> and I thought, oh my God, surely not. He is not going to give them a doll and not me. Even at 44, I still wanted that bloody doll. But, you know, interesting, there were still traces of that hurt little girl in there. So my heart was literally beating hard. I was pretending I didn't care. I was gearing myself up for disappointment, but I was also like, he's not going to do this to me. And then he handed me a present. And as I unwrapped it, I thought, what if it's not the one and only <laughs> that I wanted? Stephen Wilson. He is head chef and trainer at the Happy Puku, a social enterprise catering organization. Stephen also works for Tutui Nafano, teaching cooking and other life skills. He co-founded a restaurant in Paris where he lived for more than two decades. Stephen's story is peeling the onion, what the humble alien can tell us about life. Merci. Almost had this uh, song uh, that you know some of you uh, my age, I'm 62. I was just a child. Well, that's, that was my first line. I'm thinking of uh, uh, Elton John. Anyway, I was just a young kid, a young surfy kid, and listening to at the time David Bowie and The Clash. It was the mid 70s. Now on this day, the atmosphere was very tense. They awkwardly held this sharpened instrument in my hand, and the, the tears were just running down my um, sweaty face. I just breathed in, and I finally took the plunge again and again, and pierced the skin, and I just sighed. Relief, relief, smiling, um, safe in the knowledge that I just cut my first onion. <laughs> onion, you may ask? Yes, one too many. In fact, far too many. I had to cut two big bins. That was the morning Saturday ritual at my dad's restaurant. But thanks to that onion, it led me into life's most adventurous, challenging new beginnings. Kia ora e te ko tipini te huinua. Hi everyone, my name is Stephen. Bonjour tout le monde, et je m'appelle Stéphane, j'espère que vous allez bien. I hope you're all going well. Ça va? Oui? Well, um, I um, had the privilege of uh, growing up in a very sleepy uh, coastal town, which was called Mount Monganui. 
Now, my memories of my mother, Kiri Papu, um, was serving us at a long table. I am the 11th child, a very long table, with all the hustle and the bustle and the laughter, beautiful food. And what was so wonderful about this, it was like we lived every night in a restaurant. It was a restaurant. But my parents owned a restaurant. And one day I was to own a restaurant. Now getting back to that onion. That onion, they say there's a, this wonderful um, French say dicton, this uh, quote, you cannot discover new horizons. And, you know, I'm over at the mount. You cannot discover new horizons unless you lose sight of your own shore. Required a bit of courage. So that onion took me over to France where I got to discover la soupe l'oignon, the onion soup. Took me over to Spain, l'Espagne, where I got to see the beautiful red caramelized onion, the saffron onion, paella. Now over to Italy, Italia. Cucciano go amore. Cooked with love. Slowly cooked. Um, summer tomatoes with the basil and the onion and of course the garlic. Can't beat that. Over to India, Namaste, where we had the heavenly curries, the perfect spice, the perfect sweetness, and, and what you would have the sour of the turmeric. Over to our wonderful, exotic, humble agents with what I call the taste sensation stir fry cuisine. So, the French taught me, really, they educated my palate, the way they approached food. In fact, it's not even the food, if you'd like to know. That's why it was very hard for me to come back to New Zealand, which I'm jumping a gun, because the real food is the conversation around the table, the art of conversation, that's what it's all about. That's the best thing on this planet. That's what I teach a lot about. So I got taught about uh, cuisine, but my early years, my formative years, is that I actually got trained as an auxiliary nurse, I raised a family. Um, it was a better choice to raise a family with because once you're in the, 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 um, the restaurant industry, you really don't have a social life. It really is. Um, you miss your kids in the weekends and special days. So I became an auxiliary nurse, worked in surgery with uh, patients who were terminally ill. And I did a, many years with AIDS patients. At the time, there were about 10 million in the world. That was very rewarding. So those years were um, years of compassion. I never went through a midlife crisis. Never had, because it was very meaningful and had purpose. Um, from there, what happened was, um, there was a time when I needed to put on the apron and the heat of the oven. I was privileged to have worked several seasons at the Opera of Paris, catering there, looking after very well-known celebrities. Um, and then the dream of owning a restaurant called Kiwi Zin. Sounds like cuisine. Kiwi Z-I-N-E. I don't have time to talk about those years, but uh, suffice to say, if I had a couple of glasses of wine with you, I could tell you a few stories. <laughs> it, there came a time when I needed to connect with my family. My mother was still alive and my children. Chloe's here. Put up your hand, Chloe. Anila. <laughs> Chloe was raised in France and in teenage years. My four children were teenagers when they came. So it was time to connect with my family, my roots. So my whanau, my whenua, my papa, 
and that was a wonderful journey. It was initially very hard coming back to New Zealand because I missed that time around the table where time would be still and that's why we spent four hours. That's what I really missed. Anyway, circumstances just naturally happened. I found myself teaching those who were um, homeless in emergency housing how to cook, hands-on classes. Everyone had to, to cook. Um, it's not me up there. I made everyone do it. So healthy cuisine on a budget. Getting them off the fast food, getting them off the fats, the sugars, and the, um, you know, um, the carbs. I got them off that. And I started to connect them with the, the, the whenua, and they started to come alive, and it was beautiful. Now, this naturally just morphed into creating, because I saw the need that they needed to work, have employment, because, you know, they were just disconnected from, from, from uh, working. And so that's what I did. I created what was called the Happy Puku, and that was a social enterprise. And... This was the beginning of giving a pathway of employment to these wonderful ladies. So we've done many gigs, with, you know, I do it all the time, weddings and um, one love, or we've done 600 teachers, and I, I love it. And, and they come alive because they feel like they can give of themselves, they feel valued, they feel connected, they've been given a lifeline. Very beautiful. I teach them about the importance of flavor. So... What gives flavor? So what do I do? The onion, then the cousin, kazi garlic. Then I teach them about fresh herbs and then spices. And then I get the lemon peels zesting. And then I get them onto fish sauce, so, uh, soy. The list goes on. But I, I, I make them come alive. Like, There's much more. There's much more. Well, your body will thank you because you're looking after it a bit better. Um, you know I'm a, a, a chef because... You know, it's not that I'm not unhealthy, I just eat too much, I just love good food. <laughs> okay, so I'll finish with this. I want to tell you about a friend, she's giving me permission. Her name is Janine. When I met Janine, she had a hoodie on, a haggard face, she couldn't look me in the eyes. She'd come out of a crack house with her boy, she hadn't worked for years. She found herself in an emergency, emergency home with five families. But she was really happy. And Janine was there. And I saw her take the lifeline. Where now, she, can, she knows how to cut the onion. Because there's an art to cut the onion. She knows how to cook the onion. She knows how to cook. She knows how to take responsibility. She's no longer on the benefit. She works full time. She has her own place. She has, she's no longer in an abusive relationship. She has a boy to love. She is shining. She has a new beginning. Today, because I was with her, we both passed. Today she became, can you believe this? Can you believe this? A barrister. No, not really. <laughs> One day she became a, co a, ca a coffee barista. Thank you. Thank you. Sorry. Our final storyteller of the night is Saima Anis. Saima is a chartered accountant involved in the independent study of organizational psychology and societal change. She is a mom, baker, and keen vocalist specializing in classical Asian music. She writes about ethical issues and lives in Tonaga with her husband and two daughters. Saima's story is reinvention out of the corporate box 
into self-discovery. Simon. I'm giving up work. Are you serious? Why would you do something crazy like that? You're having a midlife crisis. These were the many responses I got when I announced that I was leaving work. Now, new beginnings is actually not an alien concept to me, because I've lived through two major immigrations in my life. So I migrated from Pakistan to the UK at the age of 16, and then I migrated here about nine years ago. But this step felt tough, because my self-esteem is deeply connected to work. And I felt like I didn't really know the road ahead. And it was also the first step towards facing demons of the past. So I did a degree in chemistry and management, um, and in typical London fashion, I landed myself a corporate role, which paid my way towards becoming a chartered accountant. So when I came to New Zealand, I was in a big corporate role, but the imposter syndrome, which a lot of us women face, where I thought, oh my God, they're going to find out that I don't know anything, or they're going to find out that I you know, barely know anything, was very, very active in me. And I proved, uh, I basically worked really long hours to prove myself. But in spite of my misgivings of not being good enough, work sent me on a year-long leadership co course, which actually was the first step towards finding out who Simon really was. Now, the experience was deeply enriching, but I realized that deeply held patterns and beliefs always remain with you until you choose to confront them. The many hours of self-reflection and the identity crisis allowed the past to resurface again. The Me Too movement at that time was confronting, and it made me face my own uh, childhood trauma of sexual and psychological abuse. Now, growing up subconsciously, I decided that I can either let the past make me a victim or strengthen me, and I'd chosen for it to make me stronger. But at the same time, it had made me highly driven and a perfectionist. So my identity as um, a Muslim woman emerged strongly in New Zealand in the aftermath of the Christchurch attack. Because I had lived through terror attacks in the UK, and I'd been, I have a large um, network of family, friends, and connections through work as well here and abroad. And it gave me a bit of a unique lens from which to view this crime. And it urged me to take up writing again from a social justice and transformational lens. So fast forward a couple of years, and I'd started feeling quite restless as an accountant. And I felt like I needed a change. So a, a project came up, which was to do with people change. And I went for it. And I realized, actually, I'm really good at understanding people. I'm a systems thinker. And I have a voice that stands, stands up for people on a social and organizational platform. So when I was um, slipped back into the role of the accountant, I just felt boxed. And I knew that I wanted to make a change, so I gave up work. And I threw myself into all things new. But this was basically being busy is an escape mechanism for me, so that I don't have to confront serious issues, and I, I needed to confront the past. So therapy made me realize that I have a very strong coping mechanism, which has basically uh, made me highly functional. But at the same time, because I didn't deal with my past, it made, it had, I had a lack of self-belief and I felt that I couldn't make any decisions about my future. So trauma, it's, it's funny, but it can break your life. Uh, it can break your life, but it can also break your life open. So I knew that dealing with the past was the only way I was going to be free of the shackles of the imposter syndrome and perfectionism to achieve my true potential. And so I 
knew it was going to be hard, but I decided that I knew that being comfortable with the uncomfortable was the only way that true growth happens. So I went to treatment for PTSD, which led me to becoming basically more appreciative of myself, of life, and um, even had great spiritual growth in that process. So as I learned to grapple with the past, I realized that actually even professionally, it's not only about what my passions are, but it's actually believing that I can achieve it. So when I left work, people were saying, oh, you'd be great for politics, you should join politics, you'd be an asset to any organization you'd go to. And all that is great and soothing for my ego, but it was futile until I believed it. And self-belief comes only from accepting who you are. It comes from accepting that, yes, bad things happened in my past, but they are part of who I am today. And everything, every bad thing, basically, I had some lesson to learn. And I know that even in the future, there are going to be uh, things that will happen, but after every fall, there'll be a rise again. So I read somewhere that trauma is deeply linked to creativity, which was profound for me, because last year I took up um, Asian classical music singing lessons with a musical maestro. And this world is like akin to an ocean. And I feel like I've really found myself in it. So the relentless hours of practicing my notes has driven my husband insane and he's gone. He's basically blessed in noise-canceling headphones. <laughs> but I feel a lot more confident um, sitting in front of people. And it's, a, it's something that I want to explore further. So what have I learned in the past year? I've learned that I don't actually have to keep on climbing the corporate ladder to appease everyone around me. I actually can get acquainted with my inner critic and I can question it and not let it rule me. I've also realized that actually picking up kids from school is sweet and teenage dramas, God forbid, are sweet. Music is sweet, writing is powerful and the discovery of self is immensely powerful and it leads to immense spiritual growth. And I also know that actually I don't need to know I don't need to know what's going to happen in the future. I don't need to know all the answers because sometimes the question, what if, becomes the new beginning. So my experience, my experiences have led me to um, become empathetic and have an insight into the human mind. And I realize how warped the human mind can get when not treated properly. And my experiences with trauma have made me realize that we all have a choice in how we view the world. So I've chosen to view the world from a message of love and hope. And I try to live with my grandmother's ethos. She said, love everyone. If you live with hate, you will die with hate. But if you live with love, you will die with love. So I wanted to finish off uh, with a few lines of poetry from one of my favorite um, poem, um, poets. He's called Fez Ahmed Fez, and he's from Pakistan, where I'm originally from. And he wrote a lot about self-discovery and um, social justice. And this particular poetry is about self-discovery and how once you find the magic within, it can lead to success in this world and the world hereafter. Self-discovery was my new beginning. <laughs> Be 
साथ का जो निशान ले मुझे राजी नस में जान ले मुझे Footage used in this podcast was filmed by Ruben Pagata and Julian Lane. Editing was carried out by myself. The event was organised by Dawn Pickin. To find out more about I'm Also, go to our Facebook page, we were on Instagram, we have a new website up soon. Maybe it's up now.